This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. We're here today in London for a look at the past year in European deal-making and what might be in store for the year ahead. I'm joined by Anthony Gutman, the co-head of UK Investment Banking here at Goldman Sachs, and also the co-head of Investment Banking Services for Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Anthony, thanks for uh, joining us. Pleasure to be here. The European economy has been relatively strong in 2017, and for the most part, the year's most closely watched elections on the continent have produced reasonably market-friendly results. How's that macro backdrop influence corporate deal-making across the continent? As we've looked across the last 12 months, we've been positively surprised by the outcomes of these elections. For our business, what's absolutely critical is stability. We like growth as well, but actually really to get deals done, we need stability and a reasonable sense of visibility, which comes from that stability. And I think those election outcomes have created that backdrop. There's less of a sense, at least in Europe, that there are more volatile, unpredictable outcomes coming. And in that context, I think around the boardroom table, generally speaking, people are much more open to doing things because they feel they know what's coming around the corner. And that's demonstrated itself in a pretty big pickup in activity. We've seen, if you look at the statistics, deal count up, which is important in our business, so a greater number of deals. We've actually seen total deal volume or deal value broadly flat. So that tells you that there's a lot of things happening in the small to mid-cap space. We still haven't seen a big pickup in the larger deals, 5, 10 billion plus. I'd say our expectation is that that will come. We're already seeing it coming, but it's taken a little bit longer for that to happen. And that's natural. As people respond to the geopolitical environment improving, they are much faster to move on bolt-on deals, on obvious deals. They take a little bit longer to move on the transformational stuff. But you know, as I said, our expectation is that that will come in 18 and 19, as long as we don't see some material adverse change in the European political environment. Of course, the elephant in the room in that regard is Brexit. But beyond that, it feels pretty good. We'll get back to Brexit in a second. But talk a little bit about where the activity has been most concentrated, what sectors and what geographies. Firstly, before we get to sectors, we've seen a significant amount of activity in private equity sponsor world relative to public corporate world. And that's been pretty clear for the last 12 to 18 months. And is that just your typical harvesting as they reach the end of the life cycle of funds? In part, it's a response to the geopolitical sort of stabilization in Europe. In part, it's a function of the fact that given where we are in valuations, as you know, and given where the equity capital markets are and indices trading at pretty close to all-time highs, it's a pretty good time for vintages that are five or six years old for the big private equity houses to be exiting. And so we've seen them... IPOing, selling, in whatever way they can, monetizing most of their portfolios. And therefore, they are now predominantly long cash and short assets as they've gone through that. Just responding to your question more generally, though, on the industry front, it's really been concentrated across real estate where we continue to see significant capital and interestingly significant Asian capital still coming into the European markets. TMT, which is what we've seen on a global basis, as you know well, significant tech activity as we see really most of the big tech players continue to invest and try and find new legs of growth. A little bit of activity in healthcare, and then I'd say the other big place has been industrials. 
the manufacturing platform across Europe, the Mittelstand, which is so important in Germany, interestingly also in UK, we've seen a round of consolidation there, and we think that will continue. The sectors that have not been as active for obvious reasons are really fig, because the banks are still, I think, stabilizing themselves. I think we've come through what was a sort of existential crisis there, hopefully. But other than the capital raisings, we haven't seen a big pickup in activity that may come. And the other place that hasn't been as active as we might have thought, but again, I suspect it comes, is healthcare. So what does that activity suggest about where we might see more action in 2018? I'd make two comments in that regard. The first one is a lot of these sectors are very country-specific rather than pan-Europe. And so I think it's going to depend. Germany, I think we've seen a pickup on because Germany is very driven by their industrial base, their automotive base, the manufacturing base. And so as the German economy has demonstrated signs of recovery, we've seen a pickup there. And so I think that will continue to be the case. I'd say, do we think the recovery comes in fig more generally across 18, 19? Yeah, probably. And we're seeing signs of that. We've seen a number of banks talking about spin-offs in the last couple of weeks. And I think it's likely as people feel they have more clarity as to the balance sheets of the banks and more visibility around that, that you might see more M&A activity there. I think on the healthcare front, again, we see signs of it. I mean, we should come on, I'm sure, and talk about activism in a minute, but that's also going to spur activity. In the wake of the financial crisis, at least the G20 countries, you saw a lot of synchronized monetary policy. We're starting to see some meaningful divergence with the Fed and the Bank of England starting to raise rates and ECB taking more of a wait-and-see approach. How are clients managing that monetary policy divergence, or is it a real factor for corporates? It's fascinating. I mean, right now, if you go and sit down with a treasurer or a CFO of a multinational, the world is very confusing. Some might say it's always been confusing, but I think what they're having to manage, not just in terms of rate policy, but FX and currency and all the other associated moves in the capital markets, is forcing them to really spend a lot of time investigating where things may go. And so I'd say we've disproportionately lent into our views on capital structure, on financial planning. I think right now it's very hard to tell you what anyone's doing because right now they don't know. I mean, what they do know in treasury and finance functions, I think, in these corporates is they have to have multiple different scenarios. And really what they're tending to do, and we're spending a lot of time with them, is analyze the different scenarios, have views on how they respond to those different scenarios, be able to testify, if you like, to their boards that they are ready for those. I think overall, though, the sentiment around the boardroom table, certainly the sentiment among CFOs, is what you'd expect, which is this rate environment is unprecedented in our lifetimes. And so borrow as long as you can, (laughs) as much as you can, because the world is going to change. And the real question for them is, when does it change? And that's why we've seen, you know, you've seen in the States, we've seen here, which is increasingly long-tenured financings of real scale. It seems like every year people say the DCM markets have peaked, but then another year goes by with very low rates and people manage to borrow more. When do you think that ends? I'm a bad person to ask because I've been telling clients for the last three years that they should do it because next the year things are closing. going to change. <laughs> You know, I've been embarrassed by that. But 
I think it's still right. You know, we all live these slightly schizophrenic lives. Where on the one hand, we're trying to grow businesses and do all the right things we can to capture the markets. On the other hand, we're risk managers. And so we have to have that slightly glass half empty approach to suddenly to funding. And I think that schizophrenia, if you like, is absolutely rampant across our client base. Talk a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of China's interest in European companies. There's been a big interest in the Mittelstand in Germany. What are buyers from China in particular looking for? It's been an interesting three or four years for outbound China activity. We saw, I'd say in whatever that was, 13, 14, 15, the very heightened volumes where China sovereign wealth, China SOEs, anything China with an ambition was really deploying significant amounts of capital across Europe and the U.S. As we know, that slowed pretty dramatically as we saw a heightened focus from the government and some constraints put in place. But what's been interesting is the taps haven't turned off entirely. And actually, in the last 12 to 18 months, we've seen a resurgence in those capital outflows. Not of the scale we saw before, but definitely a resurgence. It's really focused around two or three areas, at least in Europe at the moment. One is there continues to be the obvious focus on consumer brands. And so given this burgeoning middle class in China and the opportunities that affords to great consumer brands, we've seen significant focus in either minority or controlling investments into consumer brands that look like they're transportable to mainland China. That's one area. The other area has been technology. And I think we're probably going to see a lot more of that. It feels like we're moving through an inflection point here where Alibaba, Tencent, and Financial, we all know the names, you know, as their platforms scale significantly, they continue to buy in technology, buy in optionality as they grow their businesses. And we're seeing the early stages of that, but I think that's going to pick up quite significantly. What we've seen less of was what we saw in the prior years, which is sort of less clear strategic moves, deals that look more like they were being really done to drive capital offshore. Back across the pond in the U.S., there's obviously been a lot of activism and a lot of noise around activist investors. So boardrooms are obsessed with making sure that their house is in order. What are we seeing from activists in Europe? Is it at the same fever pitch as it is in the U.S., or is it more muted here? It's been fascinating the last quarter. I'd say I am busier and we are busier dealing with activist situations than we've ever been in this business, suddenly in Europe. And our activism practice, if you want to call it that, is probably the busiest practice we have. It's far busier than hostile M&A, it's busier than sell side, busier than IPO. So it's a very timely question. I think the reason that it's picked up here in particular is driven by, I suppose, three key reasons. The first one is Europe looks cheap relative to the US right now on most metrics. And if you add the next dimension to it, which is it also looks like Europe actually is growing faster than the US, if you look at corporate earnings growth, you can see why people are looking across the Atlantic here and saying, okay, there may be more value here than there currently is in the US. When you overlay that with at least what we see, which is that the U.S. just seems very crowded in activism world, whereas Europe hasn't seen the same volume of activists. There's more opportunity for alpha here. Exactly. And then you overlay the currency position. I think it's pretty logical that we're seeing the moves we're seeing here. The thing that's been surprising is 
that the activist attacks in the U.S., which have been on these big public companies, we didn't think we'd see here. And actually, we've seen the biggest companies in Europe hit by activists and hit in some ways pretty successfully. You look at Unilever, you look at Nestle, you look at Rolls-Royce in the U.K. These are big marquee brands that we all grew up with, which have been the focus of these attacks. I think the thing that we're still trying to work out without being too parochial about these things is... Look, there is a cultural difference between the U.S. and Europe. And historically, that manifested itself in institutions who own these stocks saying to activists, if we have a problem, we'll deal with it direct. We don't need your help. That dynamic seems like it's changing. It seems like the market is more open to these activists because the activists are making pretty good returns and the institutions are smart enough to see that they may benefit from that. So... Our suspicion is that this is here to stay, it's going to grow, and we're going to see a lot more of it in 2018. Global investors have a lot of cash. They need to put it to work with interest rates where they are. But the IPO market in Europe has been a bit of a mixed bag. The UK lagged a year ago levels, broader Europe's up, but not substantially. Why do you think that is, and where might we go from here? When we look at the IPO data, we have to be careful because, you know, I made this point about private equity in response to one of your earlier questions. To be fair, a lot of the reason why volumes are down is because there were such heightened volumes in the couple of years preceding. And I think that really is private equity having got through a significant amount of the deals they had in their pipeline, got them out. And so actually, the private equity supply into the IPO market is reduced because there's not a lot left to do. And that's been one big factor. The second big factor is the IPO markets beyond any of our other businesses really need very stable markets. They don't need growth, we said, but they do need stability. And, you know, we had a volatile period up until the last six plus months as we've gone through this election cycle, particularly in France and Germany. And so I think that's constrained activity as well. What surprised suddenly me and I think has surprised us institutionally is Notwithstanding all the noise around Brexit, the UK IPO market may have sort of slightly worsened in terms of volumes, but we've seen a big pickup in activity in the last quarter. And we've seen companies floating in the UK that have a choice where they float. Yeah, that's somewhat surprising given the choices that are out there. I think options right. in Asia, options in obviously in New York. I would say this, wouldn't I, as a patriot and a London dweller, but I think that the reality is that the capital markets are still pretty strong and resilient, and the London IPO market, the London Stock Exchange, is still seen as one of the foremost capital markets in the world. People also tend to have their operations for Europe based in London. That may change over time. And I think people overall underestimate the rule of British law, the time zone, the language, and everything else that's associated with it. So... I'd say we've been positively surprised by that, and I suspect we may see more of that change over time as things become clearer around Brexit. But for the moment, notwithstanding that activity has lessened, we still see quite a lot of volumes here. Let's go a little deeper on Brexit. The UK economy so far has proved reasonably resilient through the early stages. The weak currencies helped exporters, and unemployment stayed pretty low. How have clients been navigating this uncertainty And has it dampened at some level a willingness to invest? Yeah, look, we went through this period like you do in response to most major events, a degree of mourning, a degree of shock, a degree of surprise, where everything just stopped. I'd say that was a period of a few weeks. But then, as you say, Jake, people bounced back very quickly. It was helped by some economic underlying moves, which were inevitable, although people probably didn't see them coming in the way they might have done. And so the economy has been pretty buoyant. 
I think the expectation, unsurprisingly, is that that isn't sustainable. I mean, it's a short-term phenomena. But I think also because the political dynamic in the UK is so unclear, that just exacerbates the view that people have, which is it's very hard to call what actually happens here. Every day you read the newspaper and there's a different outcome, there's a different view. Really what that means is that corporates are sort of doing what I was saying that treasurers are doing. I mean, they have to have all of their scenarios laid out. They've got them, as do we, as you know. But operationally, it's interesting. It feels like it's business as usual. I do not see significant changes in the way people are running their businesses. What you do see and hear regularly is a sense that it is becoming harder and harder to recruit great talent internationally because unsurprisingly there's less of a desire for people to come here. It's not so manifest at the moment that it's causing real problems, but people see the specter of that coming. Where I think it is most obvious is CapEx, capital expenditure and capital investment. It hasn't been clear to the naked eye, if you like, because you look if you're in the middle of building a factory or in the middle of doing a project, stop. you're not going to stop. Yeah, costs of doing that are substantial. Yeah, exactly. But if you have something planned, you've put that on hold. And either you've put it on hold because you're thinking about building a factory somewhere else or you put it on hold because you want to wait and see what 2019 brings. You know, if you like operationally, it's business as usual from a capital perspective. There's no doubt that capital inflows have slowed in that regard. So our bosses, Lloyd Blankfein and Richard Nada, have talked about the contingency planning we're doing to prepare for every eventuality, really, hard Brexit, soft Brexit, all kinds of scenarios in between. How's the firm helping clients maintain that kind of flexibility? And what does that actually look like in practice? Most clients are looking to us for guidance and leadership in that regard because they're very mindful at the moment that actually we're probably right in the center of this, given the way we run our business and given how important it is to financial services. So there's no question at the moment that they are looking to us for thought leadership. And so we're spending a lot of time trying to be as open with them as we can be about our own plans, recognizing that that's difficult because it's hard to know what scenario is going to play out. I'd say that the other thing that we're trying to do with clients at the moment is rehearse the different scenarios because I think there has been a sense that people have defaulted to the media messaging around this without being open to the fact that things could go multiple different directions. And what that really means is, do we have a transitional period? How long is that transitional period? What are the different strings and bows attached to that? This is a kind of constant theme you're hearing in the discussion that we're having, which is right now, it's very difficult to have a plan A. Most people have three or four different plans. Of course, they default to their base plan, but they're really running on the different scenarios, whether it's vis-a-vis treasury or capital expenditure or how they manage their people and so on and so forth. But the easy answer to your question, Jake, is we're really leaning in significantly because we're all in this together. Let's talk a little bit about your business within Goldman, the investment banking business. In the United States, we've moved a bit to a regional strategy, and we've moved bankers out of New York and into places like Atlanta, Seattle, Houston, and some other parts of the U.S. to get a little closer to the clients. How is that playing out in Europe, and how do you think about that? There was a big period where Goldman put everyone in London, and obviously you can fly everywhere from here. What does that look like going forward for your business? It's interesting because it's obviously a segue from the Brexit discussion to this. And that's been one of the positive things that have come out of this Brexit situation, insofar as 
it does force you to look again at our business and how we run our business and whether we're running it optimally. And everyone in this firm is constantly doing that. I think in that regard, what Brexit has done is actually made us think again about where our people are relative to our clients. And I think what it's done is what you're intimating, which is it's made us realize that actually the best client relationships we have are client relationships where we live in the same city as those people. Our kids are at the same schools. We experience the same things because the best client relationships we have are very personal. They're not purely corporate. And so in that regard, I do think we've kind of re-examined whether, if you like, the hub-and-spoke model is the right model and whether we and our clients would benefit more from having closer proximity to them. I think that will play out over time, but I think it's a sort of natural evolution of our business in the same way it has been in the U.S. As an investment banker, your primary responsibility is to help companies make sense of the markets and grow their businesses. What are some of the lessons you've taken away from this tumultuous period of the past 18 months as they think through this unprecedented period? There's probably two or three points. The first one is when you're late cycle, as we've kept discussing, and you're trying to work out when, if the music may stop, you have to be careful that you don't allow that sort of bearish sentiment to constrain you too much. And as I said, when we were talking about rates earlier, I mean, if people had listened to me and I listened to myself, then you would have left an awful lot of value on the table. And so I think that the importance of the business community not constantly looking for where the end may come, but managing that risk management philosophy, if you like, with at the same time recognizing that there is real growth in the world, there's significant capital, and they should take advantage of that is very important. And that's just a personal observation. I've been very mindful of not being unduly constrained by that concern about what may come. And by the way, we all have this debate over this time, is it different relative to history and technology and disruption? But making sure that the tension between those two sentiments is balanced is important. The second thing is that I haven't been in a boardroom in the last 12 months where actually the board haven't asked around disruption. And we all know about the Amazon effect and the Alibaba effect, but you know, corporates right now are so focused on how they avoid being disrupted, how they disrupt themselves before they get disrupted. And that's been very different change in attitude, literally in the last 12 to 18 months. And it's fascinating and it's exciting because we're spending less time worrying about where a hostile bid comes from and more worried as our clients are around what are the operational risks to their business created by the new world we're living. The final piece of this, at least for us, I think, in the UK and Europe, is the fact that when capital is in such plentiful supply, you sort of want to lurch for it. But at the same time, what we continue to see is you can take too much capital as well as too little capital. There are a number of examples of companies that have raised capital because it was there, and actually that surplus of capital has probably been unhelpful to them in a number of different ways. But I think all of these points really circle around the same basic question that everyone's asking themselves, which is how long is this upswing in the markets that we're seeing going to continue, and how do you manage your business against that backdrop? Well, Anthony, thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs from London. I'm Jake Seward. We hope you join us again next time.
This podcast was recorded on December 7th, 2017. The information contained in this recording was obtained from publicly available sources and has not been independently verified by Goldman Sachs. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. This recording should not be relied upon to evaluate any potential transaction. Goldman Sachs is not giving investment advice by means of this recording, and this recording does not establish a client relationship with Goldman Sachs.